Hopefully that's uh, getting you nice and ready and prepared for uh, Thanksgiving coming up this week. Uh, my name is Jared Stevens. I'm one of the pastors here at Soul City Church. Uh, I'm not going to go into depth about the thing I love most on the Thanksgiving table, other than somehow when I was a kid, I really liked having mustard with my turkey, and it became one of these weird kind of obsession things, right? Like, I'm not OCD, but if I am, that's what I'm OCD about, is mustard with my turkey. So at Jeannie's mom's house, like, we'll have the whole table set beautifully, and then there's this big yellow mustard thing right in front of my, this guy's plate. So uh, that's one of the things I look forward to is mustard. You can get it really any time of year. But uh, uh, here's something I want to share with you that's really cool. As we were talking about and preparing for and thinking about Thanksgiving coming up this week, I'll let you know something that our church did, specifically our Soul City Kids families and volunteers did yesterday that you may not know about. Uh, We continue to grow in our partnership with Breakthrough Urban Ministries and several other uh, great organizations and ministries here in the city. And yesterday, uh, families and kids and volunteers from Soul City Kids gathered together up at the Malnati's warehouse and along with Malnati's employees uh, packed Thanksgiving baskets for families in need this year. Here's what's so cool. Just from our church alone, we had around 40 or so folks, kids, families, volunteers. That our, our kids were there. Uh, it was an awesome experience. And uh, I think we have some pictures where uh, you, you were literally were on conveyor belts, like pushing through these baskets and getting them all loaded in. And it was such a cool thing to see, you know, five, six, seven, eight-year-old kids being a part of providing meals uh, for families who are under-resourced or who are without this Thanksgiving season, something that many of us might not even have thought about, our church was a part of yesterday. And here's what I love. Well, we prepared yesterday, in just like an hour and 10 minutes, 500 Thanksgiving baskets yesterday as a church, which is awesome. And so what that means in partnership with our great, great, great partners that we have the opportunity to partner with here in the city, that's about 15,000 people that will have a Thanksgiving meal this week. And that's from a six, a seven, an eight-year-old kid, their mom or dad, some volunteers, some college kids around here. It's amazing what we get to be a part of around here. And so we are so grateful for the opportunity to do that and to see that happen. And our, my kids, our kids loved being there. Most of all, when it was all said and done, they liked riding on the conveyor belt. So I think they're getting a heart of compassion. I think it's growing in them. Uh, well, uh, as Jeannie mentioned, we are in the middle of a series here in Colossians where we are diving into this letter that Paul wrote uh, to the church in Colossae, and uh, we're exploring what, not only what he said to that church, but what it means to this church, and specifically to our lives. And as I was preparing for our time together here this weekend, uh, God reminded me of a story from when I was a kid that at first I I didn't understand, didn't make a ton of sense, but I think when you begin to understand where we're going to go over the course of our time together, maybe it'll make a little bit more sense. The story that God brought me back to, and it's just one of those bizarre kind of things as a kid that made sense to me at the time, uh, was something I did when I went to clean my room. Now, I, uh, as, and this may come as a shock to you, uh, I was a messy kid. Uh, I, I was a boy, and so that's half the problem, and so there's a lot of messes there. And then, like, when I was 9 or 10, I just thought that was my job, was to make a mess and to keep things a mess and just to sort of work and, and roll with it. And so my room was a complete mess. And so my mom would say to me, okay, you know, Jerry, you got it. Like, it's Saturday, we're going to kind of do family chores around the house. Anyone have to do like family chores on Saturday? So we had to like do all the chores and part of mine was cleaning my room. And I didn't like it. I was so, you know, I just didn't want to do it. I'm like, it made sense to me. There was a system in there that made sense to a nine-year-old boy and just toys everywhere and all over my books. And my mom said, no, no, you got to clean your room. And, and so for a while it meant just straightening up my room, right? Which you, you, should, you should do as a kid. But then my mom took it to the next level and she said, no, Jared, I want you to clean your room. 
And now, you know, to me, that, that was a foreign concept. I, I could maybe straighten things, but cleaning meant like there was dusting involved, and, and, and I had to vacuum. And I didn't want to do that. I was frustrated about that, because that was going to take more time away from playing and more time away from me making a mess in my room. And so I, I was so frustrated. I was like, Mom, you don't understand. I don't want to have to do it. Like, I was so frustrated with my mom. Like, you don't understand me. And so, like... I was nine. I didn't really, I didn't have a lot of uh, rebellious streak in me, but I didn't, want to, I didn't want to vacuum my room. I was so frustrated about it. So this is what I did, and I, I can't, this is awesome. So to get sort of back at my mom and to get done with it quickly and to do the least amount of work possible, what I figured was when I saw a, a room that had been vacuumed, the, the only way I knew it had been vacuumed was by the tracks left on the carpet. And this was like the 80s, so shag was getting shorter and shorter and shorter, but it was, there was still some girth to carpet. And so the only way you knew a room with carpet had been vacuumed was by, by the tracks that were left, you know? And so what I figured in my nine-year-old brain was, all I really have to do here is make the tracks. <laughs> if I just make the tracks, my mom will think I vacuumed my room, and I can go back to playing and making a mess in my room. And so with all the wisdom of a nine-year-old boy, which I would love to say has changed since then, but maybe hasn't totally in my life, I made the tracks in my room. And I, I, I went literally over every inch of my carpet, made the tracks, put the vacuum up, was like, next. Like, I thought I had figured this thing out. I had cracked the code. I was the smartest kid in the world because I'd fooled my mom that I'd cleaned my room. Well, two problems with my plan. Uh, first is... Uh, th- this was back in the day where vacuum cleaners weighed 480 pounds and made a lot of noise. Consequently, when they weren't on, they made no noise. I didn't think that part through. I was just like, no, all you need to do is the tracks. Well, of course, my mom never heard the vacuum cleaner going off in my room. Second small detail, which some of you may have figured out, or maybe some guys in this room haven't yet, is that had I taken two more seconds and actually plugged the vacuum cleaner in, and made the exact same tracks that I made, I could have actually cleaned my room. I might have actually gotten the job done. And so I thought I was so smart, I'd so figured out, and I was such an awesome guy. Well, of course my mom kind of figured out and made me go back, and I had to like go back over the tracks with it plugged in. I was like, stupid vacuum, stupid clean room. Like it was so frustrating to me. And as I was thinking through and remembering that story, I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the, the, what we're talking about this weekend uh, is something very similar that a lot of us do when it comes to our relationship to or our relationship with God is that many of us go through a ton of energy and time making tracks in the carpet of our religious activity without actually being connected to God. Is that we go through the same amount, if not more, time and energy and effort and even sometimes anxiety working through and making tracks in the carpet of our religious activity without ever being plugged into and connected to a relationship with God. And we wonder at times why that isn't working. We wonder why at times all of our religious activity hasn't changed us completely, hasn't grown us. And as we looked at last week, uh, what is true of all of us is all of us at some level are always working to find, even this little nine-year-old boy in my room trying to clean up with the vacuum, we are always trying to find how we can get the most from God that requires the least of us. That's just true of human nature. We want to get the most from God that requires the least of us. And so we settle for and get stuck on the external trappings of religious activity without maybe even being connected to a 
transforming relationship with God. And this is what Paul addresses in the second chapter of the book of Colossians, which we're going to dive into right now. So if you'd grab a Bible, uh, if you brought your own, fantastic, because we are reading through this book together. If not, there's a blue Bible right in front of you you can grab. Feel free, there's a pen there, like take notes, write in this. That may help someone else later, okay? So seriously, like feel free, because we're going to be going through a lot of verses tonight. It's found on page 1089. 1089. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week, so I won't spend a ton of time. You can go and listen to the podcast or watch the video, but this is a letter that we're reading that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in a town called Colossae. Colossae was not a significant town. In fact, when the Rome reworked its roads, they'd basically written it off the map. But there was a church there, and this church was growing. The church was about 15 years old, but at this time when Paul wrote it, probably around 62 AD, they were adapting and adopting all kinds of different beliefs from the culture around them. They were taking what is a Christian faith that was largely built from, in the beginning, around a group of Jewish converts. So you have this new movement created through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The first converts are Jewish, so they're bringing a lot of that tradition, and a lot of the Christian tradition is based in and rooted in this Jewish tradition, so you already have that complexity. Well, they were a Greek town living in an occupied Roman culture. And so there's all kinds of different things that this church in Colossae is pulling from, and in fact, adding to their religion and their expression of faith. And Paul is on a mission to speak into that in this church. In fact, two of the things that are unique for our time together over the course of these next few weeks is that they were obsessed with new secrets and mysteries that hadn't yet been revealed. Shortcuts and new things that were going to radically revolutionize. Silver bullets is what they were looking for, although they didn't have as many bullets back then. But they were looking for some little shortcut to help them get the most from God that required the least of them. And at the same time, they were being influenced by some outside teachers who were doing a form of and and, and created a form of asceticism. Now, asceticism is like legalism on steroids. And so what had come into this church was a group of people sort of from the outside, and they'd made their way into the church that was teaching that, no, what you have to do, what asceticism says is you deny the body anything and everything that it derives pleasure from. That's how you'll be holy, is you shut off and cut off any pleasure in your life. And not even just bad pleasures, like normal pleasures, like food and specific foods and drinking, and all kinds of different things that were like normal human functions, this group, this hyper-religious group was saying, no, 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 you cut all that stuff off. And they had imposed all these new festivals and religious traditions. And so Paul is going straight after these teachers and this teaching that had infected and affected this church. So that's the context of what is going on there. And specifically, we're going to walk through a few things in this passage that are incredibly contextualized. Like you're going to read some phrases and words here that really don't cross over into our culture today, that we don't have a lot of connection to. And a word about that when you're studying the scriptures and when you're reading God's word is that everything is written in context. And the context in this case is a Middle Eastern culture 2,000 years ago. So our context is very different today, is it not? So anytime you're reading, you have to be aware that there is a very specific cultural context. But what you're always looking for when you're reading the scriptures is the transferable truth that comes even through that context. What you're looking for is a principle that speaks, that still speaks, that God uses to speak even through some very specific 
context. So while some of the things we're about to read, you're like, I've never heard of that. Guess what? Most of us in this room haven't heard about some of the things we're about to read about. But what it serves to remind you as these are very specific people, and this is a very real problem that Paul is addressing. They're ordinary, everyday people just like you and I, and Paul is speaking very specifically and deliberately to them, and I believe God is going to speak very specifically and deliberately to us tonight. So with all that being said, let's jump in at verse 16, chapter 2, verse 16. Paul is saying this. He goes right after it. Therefore, he says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. So this is some of the stuff we're talking about with asceticism, okay? This is this hyper-extreme legalism. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Now, let me just hit pause here. Again, several of those things, we have, you have no idea. Like, how many of you ever heard of the new moon celebration, right? I know many of you celebrate a blue moon celebration every day with a slice of orange. That's something... That's not this. This is different, okay? That's something else for another message at another time. So what this is, is these very specific things that have been added onto the message of Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, don't you let them judge you or hold you to a standard that's actually not God's. He says this, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. In other words, all of the sort of religious practices and all the things that you can read about in the Old Testament were a shadow of what was actually to come which is Jesus. All of that was to point us to and to prepare us for Jesus, okay? And this is what Paul says. There's shadow of these things that were to come. The reality, however, is found, the reality is found in Christ. This is Paul's point throughout this entire letter. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you or say you're not spiritual enough. Such people also go into great detail about what they have seen and their unspiritual minds puff them up with idle notions. Now we're going to hit pause right here. Because I think what's so fascinating, what's so interesting, is when it comes to overly religious people, what usually comes in tow with overly religious people is a load of pride and arrogance. Have you ever met someone like that? Who, who their whole thing is about how spiritual they are, how, you know, how much they know about God, how much they do this. Have you ever talked to someone like that like, that sort of makes you feel that way? At the very least, it's not even maybe that they're bragging about how spiritual they are, but they are definitely making you feel less spiritual than them. Ever been around someone like this before? It's not new. This is an old tradition. That overly religious people become overly puffed up with pride in themselves. We're going to explore how that happens. But Paul is saying, don't you listen to them. Don't you believe it. Their unspiritual minds actually puff them up with idle notions. They have lost connection with the head, which is Jesus, from whom the whole body, which is the church, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So they have now imposed a form of religion that is devoid of Jesus. So it sounds very spiritual, it sounds very intense, it sounds very extreme, it looks as though it might be something very spiritual and points us to God, but it is absent of Jesus. And anyone who's trying to sell you religious practices or religious beliefs that will get you to God without Jesus is just that, selling you something. Okay, this is what Paul is imploring, that this is critical. You cannot remove Jesus from the equation. It just doesn't work. Paul goes on and says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to this world do you submit to its rules? 
do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. So Paul's saying, look, all the stuff that you're so worried about not doing, you're abstaining from, you're avoiding, guess what? All that stuff's going to pass away anyway. None of that stuff has eternal significance in and of itself. He goes on to say, such regulations indeed have the appearance, an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining the sensual indulgences. And this is really interesting because Paul says so often what ends up happening with overly religious people, what comes with the baggage that comes with overly religious people is not only pride and arrogance, but in a matter of time, not always, but almost always, comes hypocrisy. Comes people who are saying one thing, but are doing something else. Who, who, who have believed that all their religious activity can keep them from sinning, when the reality is nothing can keep you from sinning. The only thing that can save you from your sin is Jesus. And so what Paul's saying here is, look, all these folks, they're, they're, they're trying to tell you that if you're super religious, super spiritual, sort of this is, you, know, you can work your way up to God, but none of their rules can ever stop you from the desires of your flesh. It just doesn't work that way. God is not an equation to be worked out. God is not a formula for us to throw into our lives and figure him out. So Paul is employing them, look, this, guys, this is not what it's all about. And what's amazing is what he is speaking so directly and clearly to in them 2,000 years ago is still our tendency to this day. We still continue in this legacy. Because for many of us, we may not think of ourselves as super religious people, but most of us still have some sort of addiction to religion. Still have some sort of hope that religion itself can save us. That our religious activity can actually, in and of itself, get us closer to God. And the crazy thing is that Paul's pointing out here, and is true of us today, is that anytime we focus our energy on religious activity, ultimately what we're focusing on is ourselves. Because it's all about what I can do, what I have to do, what I must do. And so the point of all of our religious activities, we want to believe that it'll get us to God, but guess where it ends up leaving us with? Ourselves. And so often what it ends up leaving us with is guilt and shame because we're not religious enough. And we never will be because that's not the point. Paul says to this church, his conclusion to our self-imposed, self-obsessed religion is simple. It's not us. And what's amazing is in Colossians chapter 2, Paul goes and spends the second half of this whole chapter pointing out this false teaching, this, this death of religion, right? He points it out so clearly. And then the way that the Bible's laid out, it just ends right there. It's the most melancholy ending ever. I mean, it's just like the worst sermon ever. Like, it doesn't work. It's hopeless. None of it's any good. Let's pray. Right? That's not really, like, that's kind of, that's how it feels. Well, when Paul was writing this letter, he didn't put chapters and verses in. That came later, right? I mean, think about it. When you write a letter or you write an email to someone, you don't break it down into chapter and verse. Although some of you have very verbose emails. Maybe you should. But that's not how Paul wrote it. Paul's conclusion actually comes 
at the beginning of chapter 3. So go ahead and look at chapter 3. Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 1. Here is the conclusion. Here is our hope for our self-imposed, self-obsessed religion. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things where? Above. Above this mess. Above this death of religion. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things, what? Above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We talked a lot about this last week. That the fullness of God, the fullness of God, which was in Christ Jesus, the amazing supremacy and centrality of Jesus Christ, which Paul goes into beautifully in Colossians chapter 1. The power and the mystery that Paul revealed in the opening part of this letter is that all the fullness of God which dwelt in Jesus is now in you. And the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17 becomes fulfilled. When Christ is in us and we are in him and he is in us and we are in him and he is in us and we are in him. Paul says, look, don't, don't get stuck on all this self-imposed and self-obsessed religious activity. It cannot save you. If anything, it will drag you further and further from God. The point, the conclusion to this entire book, you can sum it all up in this, is this. The point is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. That's the point. That's the point. Is that, is that the more we begin to experience and understand who he is and what he has done, the more that begins to change who we are and what we do. So our life then becomes a response to who he is and what he's done. That transforms and changes who we are and what we do. See, I think for so many of us, we have it backwards. At least this is me and this is my struggle and this is part of my story, is that I have it backwards. Instead of starting with who God is and what he's done, I start with what I have to do. And that's really the essence of religion. You know what religion is ultimately all about? It's what you do for God. That's, that's the most simple. Religion is the things you do for God. For God. You do for God. Religion is what I do for God. And I don't think anyone has ever, at least as far as I know on record, accused Soul City Church of being legalistic. Okay, as far as I know. But many of us in this church suffer from a mild addiction to religion. Many of us in this church go on sort of guilt-driven religious binges. And this is how it happens. We have good intentions. We want to, to grow. We want to know God more. And, and, and then we, we mess up. And maybe it's the same old thing we've been messing with and struggling with and messing up with our whole lives. Maybe it's something that caught us off guard, whatever it is, but we mess up and we make a mess, right? And so we go, oh, okay, well, I have to get back with God. I got to get back with God. And so we get out the vacuum cleaner and we start making lines. And we go, okay, what do I have to do? Um, I should probably go to church. He likes that. Um, so, so I'll go to church, right? And you know, honestly, you may be here tonight because of that very reason. And we're so glad you're here. You, you know, you just go, I don't know what else to do. I know that there's a lot of God people there, so I'll go there, and that'll help. God will see me there, and I'll make sure I check off. Is there attendance here? I wanted to make sure that God sees that I was here. 
And so we do that, and we, and we try and say, okay, maybe God will, maybe that'll kind of, I want to make it back up to God. And so when the offering comes, you throw a couple more bucks in, you know, I want to tip God a little bit more this week, you know, and just kind of make things right. Or whatever group we have, you sign up for the group, you sign up for it. Why? Because you, you feel bad. You feel bad because you mess things up and you, you want to do right and you want to make it right for God. So you sign up for whatever group or you dust off your Bible and you, you kind of flip through it and you just start reading wherever, hoping that maybe something will pop out to you. Or you, you try and pray and you pray as long as you can until you fall asleep. And you try and try and try and you do and do and do. And like so many of us, myself included, all of our religious activity ultimately at the end of it all is about us and what we are attempting to do to earn what's already been offered to us. We're just making lines in the carpet. In fact, we're trying harder and harder and harder. And then what ends up happening so often is it doesn't work. God in his loving kindness doesn't play by our rules. He doesn't honor our terms and conditions. And so then what ends up happening is it, it doesn't work, so now I feel further from God. I tried, I did all these things, I gave it a, a shot, and then it, that didn't work. Why? Because that's not even where God was at. So then we feel further, and the cycle kind of continues. We mess up again. We try a little bit this time. It doesn't work, and then we mess up again. And eventually, it's five years, and you haven't prayed or gone to church or thought about what it might look like to have a relationship with God. You see how it happens? I don't, no one in here, at least as far as I know, is been tagged as legalistic or, or ascetic. But all of us suffer from mild addiction to religion, believing that, that what we do can save us. And here's what's worse. Here's what's worse. Let's say you do all those things and, and you, you, you show up to church, you sign up for the group, you do the thing because you feel bad, you want to make it right for God. Again, this is, this is for folks who call themselves Christians. It's, this is not like, this is for all of us. We all do this. And then things actually improve. You get a job or, or, or some, you know, if something good happens in your life, you find someone, right? Or you get a raise or I get a great parking spot or whatever it is. That, like you take as a sign that all this religious activity worked and, 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 and all these things, well, God must really be impressed. It actually worked. And guess what happens then? The same thing, only worse. You think that it's because of what you've done, that God was so impressed by you. <laughs> And moved by your religious fervor that he parted the heavens to provide you with whatever it is that you needed. You see what can happen? Almost any way you slice it, when our hope is in religion, we end up focusing on ourselves more than we do God. And that's not what we set out to do. This is what happens again and again and again. It's like trying to pay off a hundred million dollar debt to Visa with minimum monthly payments. You know? You know how that feels. Maybe it's not that high. But there's just never enough that you can do to earn what's already been offered to you. You will never win on that treadmill. You'll never get there. So there has to be a better way. There has to be another way. And thank God there is. If religion is all about what I've done, the other way is relationship with God. And that's based on what he's done for you. Religion is all about what I do for God in an attempt to earn his love, affection, acceptance, whatever it may be, forgiveness. Relationship with God is actually based on what he has already done for me on my behalf. 
what the God of the universe has already done for me. That's where the relationship starts. Not with me and what I can do or should do or have to do or feel bad about so I'm going to do. It starts with what God has already done for me. How he's already moved in relationship with me. Religion, in and of itself, is a guilt-driven endeavor. Any way you slice it, at some level, it is a guilt-driven endeavor. And maybe you grew up around that kind of religion. I don't know what your church background is or what you grew up around, but my sense is there's, if you grew up, maybe there's, there's tinges of that, of feeling bad. You go to church to feel bad for an hour, and that makes you feel good. Like, you know, you don't really know why, and you, you kind of go through the motions. It's a guilt. It can be a guilt-driven thing, but a relationship is grace-driven. Religion is guilt-driven. Relationship is grace-driven, initiated by God on your behalf to you. It starts with Him for you. Religion is about external activities, external things that I do for God. Relationship with God is about internal transformation. So we talked about a second ago. Who God is and what he's done actually changes me from the inside. It transforms me. That's what we talk about here at Soul City Church. We want to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus. And it changes me internally so that what comes out of who I am and what I do is a response to God. Do you see the difference? Religion, external activity. Got to do, got to do, got to do. Relationship is internal transformation. I am becoming, I am becoming, I am becoming who God created me to be. That's the difference. Religion ultimately ends up at some level with pride. At some level, there's tinges of pride in there because it's ultimately about you and what you have to do. Relationship with God is about humility. <laughs> if you and I stopped and thought for five minutes if we just sat in the reality that the God of the universe, the God of the universe has moved everything, heaven and earth, sent his only son so that you could have relationship with him. That's humbling, overwhelmingly humbling. And that's why you find writers throughout the scriptures saying, God, I fall on my knees. I fall down on my knees. I am overwhelmed with what you have done for me. And if it's been a while since you've been overwhelmed with that, then I'd encourage you to take, when we're done here in a minute, to go to our prayer hall and you just get on your knees and you say, God, why me? Well, this clearly cannot be all about me because there's nothing I've done to deserve this. You are the one who moved first. And that is Humbling. Religion brings pride and arrogance and hypocrisy, but relationship brings humility and a different kind of strength. A different kind of strength. Religion, and this is one of the upsides to religion, and I love, I, I know it seems funny that you came to church to hear a message against religion, but that's what the Bible teaches. So religion, though, on the upside, as one of its benefits, can actually protect your life. It can keep you from doing really bad things, right? And some of us could have really used some religion in college, <laughs> right? You could use some religion right now, some healthy abstaining, some avoiding, right? Some staying away from those things or those people. Religion actually can protect your life, but it can't give you a life. It's no life you want. 
relationship with God actually gives you life to the fullest, a life that is alive in him, a life that is in relationship with the God of the universe so that every choice I face, every moment I feel afraid and alone, every temptation that comes my way, I face it knowing that the God of the universe who dwelled fully in Christ Jesus dwells in me. And it changes the way. It changes the way I face my life. When I'm in a relationship with God, I actually grow into the life he created for me to live. I realize and I begin to grow and transform and realize all the other hats and all the other masks that I've put on myself or others have put on me and God in his loving kindness and in his timing begins to pull those away and I actually begin to be me, who God intended and created me to be. There's a life that is given in relationship with God, a new life as the scripture teaches, that we have a new life, a true life in him. Religion, with all its hopes and aspirations, ultimately leads to death. And so, it's time we cut it off at the pass and we put it to death. In this church and in our lives, that we no longer put our hope in ourselves and what we can do, should do, ought to do for God. That we put all of our hope in Jesus Christ, and that we accept what has already been offered to us, a relationship with him. And this is just as true for the person who would say that they're sort of outside the God thing and they're checking the God thing out, just as much as it is for the person who'd call themselves a Christian. I had two significant moments in my life where I thought I had it all figured out and God lovingly reminded me that I didn't. First was when I was in college, and I've shared my story here in Soul City before. I had been a good Christian kid. I knelt beside my bed when I was six years old. I prayed a prayer. I, I, I was in. I believed that I had a relationship with God. But what quickly began to happen is I was going to church, and I was involved in church, and what ended up happening was I became a religious kid. And I just didn't do the bad things that I saw all my friends doing and and was really jealous that they got to do, and I didn't. And and I did some good things, but by the time I got to college, after however many years, 12, 13 years of being religious, I remember walking around my college campus, and I just was like, wait a second, what? 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 I didn't sign up for this. And I just remember going, God, wait a second. I was literally out loud in my college plaza, talking like a crazy person, going, I'm done Like, if this is what you intended for me, this sort of don't do this and do this, and it's all about external things that I have to do for you, I literally said, I quit. I'm done. But for whatever reason, I threw a Hail Mary pass to Jesus. I think those phrases work together. And so I threw (laughs) like this long shot prayer to Jesus. And literally said out loud, literally, I wish you could have been there, literally said out loud, Jesus, if you have something for me, I'm interested. But if it's more of this, I quit. And I was 19 years old, and I was dreaming about the days when I wouldn't have to go to church anymore. That's how religious I was. And so that began a transformational journey for me. And truly what I think for the first time in my life was a relationship with God. And it wouldn't be till another 10 years later 
where I was sitting across from a spiritual mentor in my life and explaining my frustration with God and why God wasn't working according to my terms. And there were several really difficult things that were happening in my life. I was having a spiritual breakdown or meltdown, if you will. It just wasn't adding up anymore. And there was some pain that had happened in my life, loss in my life. And I couldn't understand why God would allow that to happen. And I was sharing with her, like, what kind of God would allow me to suffer? Like, I just was really incredibly micro-focused on my life in that moment. And I remember her so kindly sitting across from me at Egg Harbor Cafe in Barrington. And she sat across from me at the table and she said, you know, Jerry, I think I know what the problem is. I think you've been following the wrong God for most of your life. You know, what do you say to that? Like, can you pass the salt? Like, what do you say back? What do you say? Because this, what? But she was right. It didn't take me long to replace a relationship with God with more religious activity that was ultimately all about me and had created new terms and new conditions for God to operate according to my needs and desires. You see, it happens to every one of us. It happens to all of us. And so our hope and our prayer is that we would just give up making lines and carpets and hoping that our religious activity will somehow impress God or at the very least fool Him. That we would give up on making it all about us and the focus being on us and what we can do and what we have to do for God and that we would actually begin to accept what he has done for us and that we would begin a relationship with Jesus. As Paul said, he's the center of it all. You cannot have a relationship with God without Jesus. And so that's what our hope is. That's why we started this church in this city. Because our city has a great history with religion, doesn't it? Many great and wonderful things. Many significant American religious moments started in this city. You know what the reality is? And you've sensed this. You've felt this. Our city's kind of done with religion. Our city doesn't need more religious people. It needs more people in relationship with God. It needs more ordinary, everyday people like you and me in relationship with him who put our hope fully in who he is and what he has done so that what comes out of who we are and what we do is a hope that's inexplainable, is a generosity and a graciousness that is unlike anything else in our world, is a spirit of love and compassion that not only looks at but looks for the need in this city and says, how can I join with Jesus in meeting this need? That we would be a people who, because of who God is and what he has done and is doing in us, would do great things through us. In fact, Jesus' promise to us about us is that we would do even greater things than he did because of him in us. That's what our city is looking for. That's what our city so desperately needs. And that's the hope for this church. And so as the band comes back up, we're going to sing some songs that we believe to be true about this God who came to rescue us, who came to us. His initiative on our behalf came to us to save us. And as they do and as we do here every week, we're going to respond to God. And one of the many ways that we worship Him is with our resources. And we're going to receive an offering right now. And this is something that uh, we do on a regular basis because it reminds us of how good God has been in our lives. And it reminds us of how much he's already given to us. And it's a small opportunity for us to give back to him.
in a real way, in a tangible way. So in a moment, we're going to receive an offering. But you know what I'd love to do? I'd love for us to just like kind of put all that aside for a second. And if you would, close your eyes or look down or sort of, you know, anything to not be distracted. Because I want to pray a prayer for the many of us in this room who may have at some point put our hope in religion. And we're going to pray a prayer that's very simple. In fact, here's the deal. If you don't even know kind of the words to pray, you can just like pray exactly the words that I pray. Just pray them in your own words. It's a prayer that says, you know what, God, I'm not only giving up, I'm putting to death religion. Because I no longer believe that what I do, that's all about what I do to get to you, but ultimately it's about what you have already done for me. And the most important thing for me to do in this moment is to respond to you, is to respond to that. And for some of us, it means that we are going to come back. We're going to pray and enter in and say, God, I want to come back to that sweet, transforming relationship with you because this religious stuff isn't working. For some of us, it's going to be for the very first time. You've never prayed a prayer like this, but you know that God is stirring in your heart that the life that he is to offer you is so much greater than anything you can drum up or fabricate or come up with on your own. And so we're going to pray right now and invite God into relationship with us, accept his offer of relationship to us. So if it would help you to follow along with these words, do that, or you can pray in your own words right now. God, we thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've already done on my behalf. I thank you, Jesus, that you came to this world and gave your life for me so that I might have life with you. I'm quick to admit that I'm a sinner and that I've sinned and that I've made a mess of my life. And I no longer put my hope in making it up to you. I put my hope in you. And I ask you to forgive me, to really forgive me, because I can't manage this sin on my own anymore. I can't manage this mess on my own anymore. And that you'd not only forgive me, but that you would restore me into relationship with you, or you would begin a relationship with you right here, right now, tonight that you would transform my life and give me the life that you've created me for. I accept your offer to me and my response is yes to you. And Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are meeting us exactly, all of us in different places, but exactly right where we're at. You come to us and bring us to the Father. And I know that you're doing that right now. Thank you for that. Thank you for the initiative that you took on our behalf to pay a debt we could never pay on our own. And so we are grateful for who you are and what you've done. Now change and transform who we are and everything we do to be a living response of your love for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our rescuer, our savior, our redeemer. Amen.